1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. We have seen God work the miraculous by liberating the Israelites from their bondage to Egypt. God gave them his moral law and the civil and ceremonial laws by which they would interact with him and with each other. Though they had failed and broken their covenant to God, Israel was shown mercy. God had been preparing a new generation to enter the land promised to them. Moses was going to die soon. He wrote Deuteronomy so that the next generation would remember how faithful and awesome God had been despite the Israelites failing and wandering the desert for 40 years. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 7.
0: Now, when we do this, we're going back 39 years in history. And what the Lord is saying, you've dwelt here long enough. I've given you everything you need to succeed. We've been here for a year. I've given you my law. I've given you my commandments. I've established a covenant relationship with you. You have everything you need to succeed. Now go. What do they need to succeed in? Verse 7. Turn you and take your journey and go to the Mount of the Amorites. If you go back to Numbers chapter ten, it gives the summarized command. We actually get more details here. But it just gives a summarized command that they got up and they went to go toward the promised land. But here we see God's full promise to his people when he tells them to go. And the full promise is astounding. He says, I want you to leave here and take your journey and go to the Mount of the Amorites. The word mount, it doesn't mean a specific mountain. It just means the hilly country of the Amorites. The Amorites were the predominant Canaanite people group So when it says the hilly area of the the Amorites, it refers to all of Canaan, okay? There were other ites there, other Canaanites, but they were the predominant group. Moses here, when he says, go to the hilly area of the Amorites and unto all the places that are close to it, whether they're in the plain, in the hills, in the vale, in the south, the seaside, that's all the land of Canaan. And Moses, as if he wants to make sure that we understand that, he says, to the land of the Canaanites. So the hilly country of the Amorites is the same thing as the land of the Canaanites. And the idea here, of course, is as he's describing. This is the land there, and if you're at Israel with us, you know it's the land of hills and valleys. That's all it is. It's hills and valleys, hills and valleys. And so Moses says, You know, I've given all that unto you. I want you to go and take your journey to all the places that are there. I've given all of it to you. Moses includes every inch of ground in Canaan when he gives it to Israel. But what's interesting is that God's instructions to take that land, take the land he has from, don't stop there. He also says, End. This is the part we don't get in Numbers. And unto Lebanon, all the way from Lebanon unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, if you have a Bible map in the back of your Bible, that's a huge amount of land. In the days of King David, they controlled the area of Lebanon and then to the east where Syria is. But they never got anywhere close to all the way to the Euphrates. But that's the land that God had promised them. God intended Israel to conquer not just the land that was over the river, but the land that they're in now. The land that they have defeated some of it already. See, it's almost like, you know, they're wondering, going, it was an 11-day trip here. Why are we here? And it's like the Lord says, I brought you around here because I've given you this land too. You know, it's funny because sometimes you wonder, like, why did they fight these other people if that's not part of the promised land? It is part of the promised land. All that land was promised to Israel. And Israel never, ever has experienced being in control of all the territory God promised to them. And yet, God gave it to them as a gift. It says in verse eight, behold, I have, which means pay attention, this is important. Behold, I have set the land before you. That phrase there, set, it means to gift to you, to offer you, or deliver it into your hands. He says, it's all yours. All you have to do is take it. He says, I have said it before you, go in and possess the land which I promised to your forefathers and unto their seed after them. This is important because it reveals two things to this new generation about their God. First off, it shows them that their God is good. It shows them that their God is good. He doesn't ask us to do anything where he hasn't gone before us to make a way. He doesn't ask us to do anything that's not good for us. He is good to us. And if you're going to be someone that loves God supremely, you have to know that. You have to believe that with all your heart. The times that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, that God tells me to do, is because I don't trust him. I don't I don't love him supremely in that area because I don't believe that's what's best for me. I think this is best for me. And I go and take that course of action. It's crucial to understand this point that God is good. Their God who's giving them all these laws, all these commands. He is good. But the second thing that it would teach this new generation about God is that he's not the one who failed. He's not the reason that they were 40 years in the making on an 11 year journey. Israel is the one that failed. Which means the question of why are we here right now is answered by saying, not because that's where God wanted you to be. I understand that it's difficult when we disobey God and we experience the consequences. Life stinks, (laughs) it's not fun. But it is incredibly illogical for you to shake your fist at God and to say, why are you letting this happen to me, God? When you completely ignore his commands and you do what you want to do, that that's not reasonable. If I were to sit down and, and just tell one of my kids and say, listen, and talk to them about drugs and alcohol and say, these things are bad, okay? These things have these side effects, whatever, and explain it to them. And they decide, if they were to decide to go off and do that, and then to be mad at me because of it, and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're always against me, Dad, and be like, hold on, time out here. I tried to give you all the tools necessary to understand how you could avoid these things, and you ignored it. How is that my fault? But we do the same thing with God frequently. We go and do exactly the opposite of what he says. We experience the consequences for it, and we're like, oh, you stink. Why do you let this happen to me, God? That's not only illogical, it's, it's not being honest with yourself. They needed to understand that it wasn't God's fault, and yet they also needed to understand that God didn't say, I'm done with you. God still brought them along despite Israel's failure. He simply decided to conquer the folks on this side of the Jordan while those people died off and this new one grew up, right? He just said, well, okay, you're not going to go there. I'll take you around the long way over many years and we'll conquer this part first and then you'll conquer that part. Now, I love the fact here that he reminds them that he had promised, he had swore that he would give this land to their forefathers because this is another important thing that this generation needed to know about their God, why they should listen to him, why they should do what he says because their God is not only good, he is also faithful. He keeps his promises. They needed to know that because he's gonna make new promises to them in this book and if they don't believe that, they're not gonna obey him. They're not gonna go in. I can't tell you how many times that God's promises have been tested in my life. And I'm like, Lord, your word says this, and it looks like this is happening. This is what's going on. And I have had to cling to those promises against all reason and against all circumstances. But here's my testimony. Not one promise of God has ever failed me. Not one. He has never failed me. So it's a little bit easier now when I look at a situation and go, this looks ugly. This looks like God's not going to do what he said he'll do because I've learned he always keeps his promises. And when you do that, it, man, it draws you. When you believe that, it draws you to be obedient to him because you know that he's good. And do you know that, that tonight, that he's good? I mean, in your heart of hearts, do you believe that? Do you believe that he keeps his promises? You know, trust him he loves you. Now, Moses, of course, starts off good here, but he needs to explain how that failure happened. If it's not God's fault, whose fault was it? How did this failure happen? Well, Moses confesses here that it all started when he entrusted some leadership responsibilities to others who proved to be unfaithful. Look at verse 9. He says, now, and I spoke unto you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. For the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are as, as this day, as the stars of heaven for multitude. And then he adds an aside, and the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as you are and bless you as he has promised you. But then he returns to his thoughts back then. He said, how could I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? You know, he said, take you wise men, those who have understanding and who are known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you you. Moses, he, he doesn't tell the full story here because there's no need to go back into all the details. But Moses, some, we might be tempted to think about, remember the time when Moses, his father-in-law came to him and said, and you know, after a long day of people standing in line to see Moses and some of them didn't get to see him to get their stuff dealt with. And Jethro turns to me he and goes, hey uh, son, uh, bad plan. This is not working out. He's like, you're wearing yourself out and the people aren't getting their needs met. He goes, you need to divvy up the responsibilities. That was a good plan. Moses did that and that was great, but that's not what he's referring to here. The phrase there when he says, I am not able to bear you myself alone means I am not able to carry or lift you on my own. Turn to Numbers 11 and let's look at the full story of what that was. Moses didn't come to them first and say that. He had some interesting words for the Lord first. Numbers 11 verse 10. I like this version better because it makes me feel better. If Moses struggled at times, then there's hope for me. So then Moses, and this is, by the way, the circumstances, this is one of the first times they complained about the food. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their, your kids ever done that? Weep because of the food you serve them? Yeah. Can you imagine 2 million kids doing that? I'm getting older as a parent now. So, I mean, they're not little, little anymore. So like when they complain about food, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm done. Like I don't have that patience anymore for that. I'm like, you're not three anymore. Eat it. Maybe I need to repent. But that's where I'm at. So Moses hears two million people weeping through their families, every man in the door of his tent. Now the anger of the Lord is kindled greatly. He's upset about this, but Moses was also displeased. And Moses comes to the Lord and he says, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people upon me? This is a holy, unspiritual moment for Moses. Number one, God never lays any burdens on us that he's not carrying the bulk load. Remember what did Jesus say? Take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burdens light. There came a point in the Old Testament where the guys, the prophets walk around and going, oh, I've got a burden from the Lord. I've got a burden from the Lord. God came to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, you tell these prophets, I don't want to hear the word burden anymore. I don't give burdens to people. I remove them. This idea said, oh, you give me all this people. You place the burden of all this people upon me. Moses said, did I conceive all this people? Have I begotten them that you should say unto me, carry them in your bosom as a nursing father? Bear? I don't know how a nursing father bears a sucking child, but this just shows you how upset he is. He's off kilter here. Unto the land which you swear to their fathers, where am I going to get a meat to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone. I need some help, God, because it's too heavy for me. And if you're going to leave me here, you're not going to give me any help, then kill me, I pray you, out of hand. If I have found favor in your sight and let me not see my wretchedness. Rough day for Moses. The help that he's asking for here, if you read later on in the book of Numbers, it shows that he selected 70 guys. It actually became the the first Sanhedrin is what the Jews call it. I don't know if that's true, but 70 guys who would help lead the nation. So they would kind of be assistance to Moses, not necessarily just judicial matters, but just with all the stuff that was required to lead these people. And so that request, this help, was born out of Moses' complaining because he took burdens on himself that God didn't give him. And you know what is is really interesting? Is that sometimes one of the worst things that can happen is that God lets you have what you want. Sometimes that can be one of the worst things that happens to you. Now, you know what I love about Moses? He's grown since that time. Because when he talks about how, man, you guys were so massive, I couldn't handle you. Look at what he says in verse 11. Instead of saying, yeah, it was too much, Look at what he says now. He says, my heart now toward you is the Lord God of your fathers, make you a thousand times so many more as you are and bless you as he has promised you. Do you think Moses was thinking about blessing those people when he made that complaint? Uh-uh, all he's thinking about is himself. How hard his life is, how difficult this thing God's called him to do. But here, all he's got is blessing for them. He's changed, hasn't he? In those 40 years, he's learned something about God's love. Back then, he was frustrated with the people. But now, even as he recalls that time, all he wants is God to bless them right now. And I love that about Moses' growth because it means you and I don't have to let our past failures define our present mentality. We don't have to let our past failures define our present mentality. I can be obedient to the Lord today. I can be different than I once was by his grace and his power. And by the way, this shows the heart of a godly leader, desiring love and blessing upon God's people. And if you're you're a leader here tonight, do you have that? Do you desire God's blessing upon his people? Do you love them, really love them? Or do God's people irritate you and frustrate you? If God's people are irritating you and frustrating you right now, then it's time to repent and let the Lord do some surgery on your heart. Moses oversaw the selection of these men, so they weren't bad men. Verse 14, it says, And you answered me and said, Well, the thing which you have spoken, it's good for us to do. So I took the chief of your tribes, wise men, They were wise men and known, and I made them heads over you, captains over thousands and captains over hundreds and captains over fifties and captains over tens and officers amongst your tribes. And I charged your judges at the time. So he coached them. He gave them instruction. I want you to hear the causes between your brothers. I want you to judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. You shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. And you shall not be afraid of the face of man for the judgment is God's. Now the case that's too hard for you, bring it to me and I'll hear it. And I commanded you at that time on all the things which you should do. So these guys were not only selected because they had good moral character, they were trained by Moses so that he could duplicate himself and these would be good men who would lead the people. There was no failure in their training. There was no failure in their selection. The idea was not God's, it was Moses and it was his failure in that. It came from his carnal request. Yet they received everything they needed to succeed. I do want to touch on this real quick because I don't know who's here tonight, but if you're a civil servant, these are great principles here set out by God for you if you're a civil servant in some way. Number one, he says, judge righteously, which means according to God's standard, honestly and fairly. You know, if you're a civil servant, you work in government somehow, I think that's God's, you want, God says, this is how you need to do it. You need to make sure you judge honestly and fairly according to God's standard. Number two, he says, I want you to treat the foreigner the same as your countrymen. Bigotry and prejudice have no place among any of God's people, but especially among those who pass sentence upon, who, who deal with law, especially upon civil servants he has bigotry and prejudice has no place among civil servants thirdly he says i want you to treat the small and the great alike i want you to treat the insignificant the same as the influential and the powerful don't let their influence and power alter how justice should take place and then lastly he says fear god and not man because there's nothing to fear when you're doing things god's way now you might be saying well okay pastor will I thought this is about the failure of Israel to go into the promised land. What relevance do these 70 leaders have to the failure of Israel to enter the promised land? Well, let's look at verse 19. Now, verse 19 says, and when we departed from Oreb, from Sinai, Moses says, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness. And that's that section of numbers from like 11 to 21. And I could see why Moses said it was great and terrible. It was vast and it was horrible. It was horrifying. The word there implies it was scary. Because, man, it was day after day of Israel just problem after problem after problem. They came through very scary places at God's direction, but they did arrive at their destination safe and sound. Any losses they experienced was because of their unbelief in God judging them. I bring this up because don't automatically assume God isn't leading you if things get scary in your life. And don't get upset because the scary place looks like it could keep you from your destination. God will get you to the place that he's told you to go. Trust him. Moses brings this up because he knew that they were discouraged when they arrived. For it says here, we we departed from Oreb, we went through all that great and terrible desert which you saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. And we finally came to Kadesh Barnea. When they get to that destination, they're gonna invade the promised land. They are so discouraged. So Moses encourages them. Verse 20, and I said unto you, you are come unto the mountain, the hilly area of the Amorites, which the Lord our God does give unto us. So behold, the Lord your God has set the land before you. He's given it to you as a gift. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has said unto you, fear not, neither be thou discouraged. That's the plan. Go up, not send spies. Verse 22. But you came near unto me, every one of you, and said, Um we want to send men before us and they shall search us out the land and bring us word again by what way we need to go up and into what cities we shall come. They come and present this to Moses that, you know, uh, we don't want to go up just yet, Moses. We want to check out the lay of the land. We want to find out what we're up against here. Moses, he thinks it's a good idea. He says, and the saying pleased me well. And I took 12 men of you, one from each tribe. According to Numbers 13, it lists the 12 men who did that. Guess who they were? 12 of those men who were part of that group of 70. These were the men that Moses asked for help that God never designed him to have, that he was born out of his complaining and bad attitude. They were trained right. They had all the the moral and whatever capabilities to say, oh, he'd be a good leader. But these are the guys who end up getting Israel in trouble. Why? What happened? What went wrong? It says, verse 24, and they turned and they went up into the mountain And they came into the valley of Eshkol and they searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their their hands and brought it down unto us and brought us word again and said, oh, it is a good land which the Lord our God does give us. Now, we know the full story. Moses doesn't give the full story here. The spies, the only thing he lists here is the important thing. The spies confirmed that God's promise that he was bringing them to an awesome place to settle down. They confirmed that. When they went into the land, they said, oh, it is everything that God said it was. Did God ever lie to them and say there'd be no battles to fight? Nope. Did he ever say that there wouldn't be any obstacles? Nope. God never told them, oh, you're just going to walk in and there'll be no obstacles. He never said that. But he told them the land is an awesome, awesome land. They confirmed that God's word is true. But they rejected the power that God gave them to lead the people through the obstacles that awaited them there. And instead, they chose to give in into fear. And so why don't you turn to Numbers 13, and I'm probably gonna close with this tonight because it's a sober reminder to us. And let's begin in verse 27. And they, the spies, told him, Moses, and said, and the people, we came unto the land where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey. And here's the fruit of it. They had brought back uh, specimens. Nevertheless, the people are strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, the, the giants. The Amalekites, man, they dwell in the land in the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, they dwell in the mountains. They, they're everywhere. The Canaanites, they dwell by the sea. There's no easy route. As that's going, you can imagine the people are getting all worried and concerned. who, oh, oh, who? Oh. And so it says Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, ah, oh, forget about that. The plan, what's the plan? Go up, let us go up at once and possess it for we are well able to overcome it. But what did these leaders do? What did these men that Moses had selected, prepped properly, but it was never part of God's plan for them to be his helpers? They said, it says the men that went up with him said, no, we are not able to go up against this people for they are stronger than us. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel saying, the land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight like grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. In a moment, Moses will say, when you heard that, notwithstanding all the good things, that the fact that God's word held true, you decided instead to believe that God hated you, and that's why he brought you to this place. They didn't believe God loved them. And isn't that where obedience starts? We love him because he first loved us. If we're gonna love God supremely, we need to know that. And so Moses, he's trying to tell the people, God loves you with an everlasting love. He always has your best in mind. He is always good towards you and he always keeps his promises. He's faithful. So as you go this week, don't forget that. Don't convince yourself that God's against you. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy that says that God does not love you because you won't be able to love him back if you don't understand it. Amen? Lord, we desperately need to walk in your ways, and that starts with understanding how much you love us, Lord. Lord, we so quickly move on to other stuff and other things, and we forget, for God so loved the world, for God so loved me. Everything you've done is because of that. You created man, you set your love upon him, you gave him the whole earth to enjoy. Lord, from the very beginning, it's always been about your love. Lord, we don't wanna miss out on that. We don't wanna be those who listen to the lies of the enemy and wonder if you hate us or wonder if you're unfaithful or question your commands because we don't know if you have our best at heart. And so we wanna rest in your love, build our lives on your love, even as we sang earlier today. Lord, for those who are there tonight and maybe they're struggling with that idea that, that you love them, will you just confirm it to them right now? And Lord, would you confirm it in all of us as we study this great book of Deuteronomy you've given to us to show us how to love you supremely Because you first loved us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen.
1: The Bible says we love because God first loved us. We are completely undeserving of God's affection and mercy. And yet, we have been immensely loved and blessed by Him. When we consider His goodness, His faithfulness, His mercy, it becomes easier to love Him and trust Him. This is the basis for our obedience, that we love Him and want to please Him. He loves us. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.